Welcome to episode 100 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Ilea Danner Grubbs and Jay Eldred. Hello, Jay and Ilea. Hello. So, um, before we introduce ourselves, um, I just want to give a brief apology beforehand, listeners. I've had a really bad cold for over a week, and um, my voice has been really, really rough. So, I'm sorry if it sounds really rough or low, and if it's a little bit harder to understand than usual. Um, that's I've just been sick. But um, thank you in advance for bearing with me and being patient with me today. Um, before we get started, we're going to introduce ourselves for any listeners who may not be familiar with us. Leah, why don't you get started? Hi, my name is Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Um, I live in Trustville, Alabama with my husband, Brian, and our two young children. I got my degree from Wheaton College in elementary education with emphasis in Bible and French. And I taught in a classroom for six years, but now I homeschool my children and I volunteer in a couple of ministries at our church as well. Thanks, Jay. How about you? Yeah, my name is Jay Eldred, and I teach high school history in New Bern, North Carolina. And this is like a kind of homecoming for me. The first time I was on the Christian Humus Network was quite a few years ago for a Thanksgiving episode here on the Christian Feminist Podcast. So it's good to be back. Thanks. Um, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in uh, Sugarland, Texas now because we moved over the summer. I live in Sugarland, Texas with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. And uh, most of my time is spent uh, mothering our four young children. Uh, we have six, six, four, three, and uh, 10 months, almost 10 months. And um, when I'm not taking care of the kids, I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, and for the past year and a half or so, I've been exclusively online. And so that's always a lot of fun. And uh, I also teach Bible study at church. And uh, for any listeners who may have caught the names and wondered, yes, um, Eileen and I are related. Um, we, yeah, uh, I was going to say something about that. <laughs> yeah, we married the Lovely Grubbs brothers. Uh, two of the three Lovely Grubbs brothers are our husbands. So um, it's really, really fun to get to podcast together. Um, and uh, just quick words, listeners, on why we're doing um, this particular book, Monstrous Regiment, for this episode. Um, so um, a while back, uh, after we did the Weird Sisters episode on another Terry Pratchett novel, um, Jay had suggested that we should talk about Monstrous Regiment sometime um, because it's such a great fit for Christian Feminist Podcast. And uh, I thought that was a wonderful idea, and I ended up grabbing the 100th episode slot for it because it seemed very appropriate um, that we would uh, kind of celebrate our 100th episode um, as a podcast uh, with a text like this that has so much to say about women and uh, female strength and feminism. So that was kind of the... uh, the the impetus behind this um and before we move to our kind of factual stuff and knowing um exploration we wanted to quickly just say a few words about when we kind of first got into reading terry pratchett um and i'll i'll start there um i had never read any terry pratchett when i was younger but when i started dating david my husband um he was a big fan 
and he owned a lot of the Discworld novels already. So I didn't even have to go out and get them. He just, you know, would pick them up off his shelf and hand them to me. And the first one he gave me to read was Equal Rights, um, which is really good. In the end, it was not one of my favorites, but it did introduce me to Granny Weatherwax, who's probably my favorite character in all of the Discworld. And um, so over the years, I've read, I think, all of the Discworld novels, almost all of them. There may be one or two that I missed somewhere in there. Um, and there are some, mostly the witches ones, um, and then also some of the ones with Sam Vimes, um, and all the ones with death, because death is also a big favorite character of mine. Um, those I've read multiple times. Um, so I definitely kind of have play favorites among characters, but, um, anything that he, uh, wrote is always interesting and fun to me. Um, and I like his young adult novels too. I love the Tiffany Aching books. So those are kind of, um kind of my favorite elements of the Discworld. I first read this book um, around that time, so probably, I don't know, um, 2009, maybe, 2010. Um, I didn't get to it till I'd read some of the others already. And I thought it was interesting. It's not one of the ones that I endlessly reread, but that's mainly because um, while this one is very, very good, to me, it's not as um, quite as lighthearted or as funny as some of the other ones. Um, and so if I'm looking for something to read right before I fall asleep to kind of like take the day away for me, it's um, I would reach probably for something else, something like Lords and Ladies or something. Um, but that's kind of my history, I guess, with uh, reading Sir Terry. Um, Leah, what about you? I started reading um, his books in high school, my freshman year of high school over Christmas break. Um, my best friend uh, grabbed uh, the Discworld computer game at Books a Million, you know, um, just kind of randomly. She liked the graphics on the box. and th I mean, we're talking like the old school computer game. And uh, she thought that it looked fun and interesting. And so she started, we started playing it together. Like we would go to her house and, and try to play it. And it was really hard. And so we thought, well, maybe if we read the books, we would understand how to play the game better. And so I grabbed Feet of Clay because I think that was the one that was out. That was the like was one of the ones that was most recent at that time and just kind of randomly started reading Feet of Clay and uh, really, really liked it. And so went back and read Small Gods. And then just from there, it just kind of I just grabbed everyone I could find at any bookshelf anywhere. Um, and um, he is my absolute favorite author. And um, it, it didn't take long before I completely fell in love with him. And um, I'm pretty sure I own every book he's ever written, um, including some of the non-Discworld ones. I have Carpet People and Trugger, Truckers, dig, dig, Diggers, Wings, whatever those are. Um, all the, the old ones, but they're they're not as good as the Discworld ones. Um, my favorite of the like kind of mini series within Discworld are the the Rincewind books, which I know Katie always makes fun of me for, but I because I love them because they're so hilarious, and they're so ridiculous, and Rincewind just his like deadpan um, kind of dry humor in the face of complete catastrophe at every turn, just it's just so funny to me. I just I laugh until I cry reading those books, um, and uh, but as far as like like my my spirit animal is Susan Stohelet. She's a teacher, and I, I I just I love her. She's great. Um, I love the death books, and but I love Vimes too. He's one of my favorites. So, um, I have lots of favorites too. And um, this book I had only read. Uh, this book I read when it came out. I have the hardback that I bought like as soon as it came out. I by 2003 when it came out, I was stalking 
the bookshelves at Barnes and Noble and Books a Million and, you know, waiting for the newest Terry Pratchett to come, to come out. And um, anytime he would put out a new one, I would, you know, haul over to the store and, and get it as soon as it came out and read it there in the store um, because I couldn't wait to get it home. And uh, so I have the the hardback that I bought when it first came out and it's, but I haven't reread it since then. Um, so this rereading it for this podcast was the first time I'd reread it since I bought it. Um, so that was fun to kind of go back and revisit it. Cause a lot of times I, I just kind of have vague impressions of some of the ones I read a long time ago. So it was fun to go back and, and re-see. Thanks. And that's, that's the beauty of, of the disc world too, is he, he wrote so many interesting characters that it's completely possible for like, Leah and I have very different favorite books, but that's the great thing is he wrote so many good characters that you can not really love a particular character or you can, you know, like a different one and still find multiple books that that person is going to pop up in and be able to enjoy yourself. And um, so that's always that's one of the best things about it. Uh, what about you, Jay? When did you first uh, hook up with Sir Terry? Uh, I first discovered Sir Terry sometime about 2009 or 2010, thanks to the movie Hogfather that came out about that time. Um, saw it in the store, thought it was kind of interesting, saw it was based on a book, checked the book out at the library, and I guess the rest is history. Um, so that would have been 2009, 2010, and over the next two, two and a half years, I went ahead and like bought every Discworld book that I could find. Um, and while I don't own everything that Pratchett wrote, I do have all of the Discworld novels now, and I try to read through them. Not every year, but maybe every two years or so, I've tried to read through them. Um, picking my favorite book would is almost impossible because I love everything he's written. But I would probably have to stick with Hogfather as one of my favorites and The Last Hero, which is a slightly different kind of book if you can ever track that down. Um, like you, like y'all, I do have favorite characters, and for my characters, I'd have to go with Sam Vimes and Death. So, anyway. Um, yeah, Hogfather's just, a solid choice. That's a good one. Oh, yeah, it, for it, sure. And just throwing it out there, it's interesting that we have kind of the same, same favorite characters. My wife and I are going to a Comic-Con this coming summer as Death and Susan Stohelet, so... That's yes, awesome. it's amazing. Brian and I, my husband and I did that for a Halloween party a couple of years ago. And we had my daughter as the death of rats. <laughs> she was a baby. At the, she was a baby at the time. So Those she was pictures were so cute. Um, also, on the topic of the death of rats, shout out to Laurie Norris, who also podcasts with us on the CFP, because she made me one time for Christmas. She knitted me a tiny death of rats. He's like knitted out of white yarn and then she and made him a little so yeah cute. and she made him a little like hood or you know she made yeah. him the cloak with the hood it's awesome um so uh we're gonna go ahead and move forward into um giving a little background on the book um and i'm gonna start i'm gonna talk just just for a few minutes about terry pratchett and about this book just for any listeners who aren't familiar so um his full name sir terrence david john pratchett was born in 1948 and um very, very well known as an author of fantasy novels, but um, also known um, widely because intertwined with the fantasy in at least in all the Discworld books is a very um, satirical, comical look at things that appear in our own world, not just in the Discworld. And you can see this really obviously in some books which are kind of dealing with one particular idea like making movies or uh, what is it, uh, moving pictures? 
What's the name of that one? Oh, yeah, moving, moving pictures. pictures. Moving pictures. Um, or soul music, which is about rock and roll, um, which also has Stu- Susan Stohelet. Um, and you know, uh, going postal is the same thing. Making money. Um, a lot of them will kind of deal with one idea. Um, and he's best known for the Discworld novels, but as Leah pointed out, there are other ones too. Um, it's not just the Discworld, but the Discworld series has 41 novels in it. Um, listeners, this is one reason you can never get tired of Sorteria, because even if you are, like Jay said, are cycling through the novels, there are so many that it'll be a while before you come back around again to the same one. Um, the first Discworld novel was The Color of Magic in 1983, and the last one published was published after his death in August 2015, and that was The Shepherd's Crown. And um, he kind of waged a very um, public battle, I guess, just because he, he was open about it and talked about it with early onset Alzheimer's near the, near the end of his life. Um, he passed away in March 2015. And um, he had a lot of interests that kind of crop up in all of his books. Um, he was very much interested in national history or natural history, um, astronomy. Um, particularly in the Tiffany Aching books, he has a lot of um, great descriptions of the chalk country um, in England. And so there's a lot of different things that you kind of see repeated, um, in various books. And, uh, he, he writes unlike anybody else I've ever encountered, which is another reason that I've always loved his novels. When I read, first read, um, his books, I had never seen anything like that. Um, and not just because I was a kind of a newbie to to fantasy novels either. I mean, you know, later having read more fantasy, I was thinking still, no, nothing's like this. Um, as far as this specific novel goes, um, Monsters Regiment was the 31st novel in the Discworld series, and it takes its name from uh, an anti-Catholic 16th century tract by John Knox, which Jay's going to talk about in a minute, so I'm not going to go there with that. Um, but uh, it was... Um... Hold on one second, sorry. I lost my place for a second. Um, it was published in 2003, um, and the original cover is kind of a, uh, a parody of the famous photograph Raising the Flag on Iwo Jima um, and shows the characters in the book kind of posed like that. And um, it's an interesting text because while some characters that you see in other contexts do appear, um, Sam Vimes pops up, William DeWord um, from the book The Truth, um, who's the newspaper man and his, his uh, photographer Otto, you see some people uh, crop up, um, but the most of the story centers around a small group of young army recruits who are all new characters. So um, this is an interesting one even for, uh, for repeat readers, um, because reading it for the first time, it's a while before you encounter a familiar character. And um, the book was well received. Um, like a lot of his later books, um, it, it has a slightly more serious tone. Um, it, it, the focus is a little bit more, um, somber. I think the lessons in it that he is, the things he's trying to say are a little more pointed, a little less, um, flippant seeming. I mean, his books to me are never flippant, but sometimes they come off that way. Um, the New York Times said that the novel had serious heft. Um, and, um, apparently there's also a stage adaptation at one point, um, in 2014. So, um, it was, it was well received, uh, and I think that it does bear a resemblance to some of his other novels. I, I thought it was really interesting when I, I didn't realize till I looked at the chronology of all this, because I was thinking of it as, as being a lot more like some of his much later novels, like things like Snuff or um, Unseen Academicals in the, the way that I feel like he's really hammering hard on some points. Um, but then I realized, I didn't realize till later that this novel was published between The We Free Men which is a, the first Tiffany Aching story, and Hat Full of Sky, 
which is the second Tiffany Aching story. And those books, to me, feel much more like some of his earlier novels. So it's it's interesting to me that this one has that more serious tone, sandwiched as it as it was between those two young adult novels that have a very different tone. But part of that could be that he was trying to reach a different audience, right? If you're writing for a younger reader, then maybe you're going to take a slightly more lighthearted tone. And maybe that's why, just to me, it feels like some of his, his earlier stuff. I just thought that was interesting. I didn't realize that the timing of this. If you just asked me when was this published, I probably would have told you later than it actually was. Um, so that's just a, a brief kind of rundown of, of the novel and when it was published. Um, what we're going to do now is Leah's going to give us a short kind of plot summary of what happens in the novel, just in case listeners, if you haven't read it, you're not just going to be completely lost. So we're going to do that, and then we're going to have Jay give us a little bit of historical context. So go ahead, Leah. All right. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, you're I Just as a side note, I was going to say the same thing about that I thought that it was later. Um, I thought the publication was later because it reminds me, it reminds me more of the, like, um, um, almost like, like the end of the going postal series and, and all of those, like a little bit different voice, but, but yeah, that is interesting. Cause I didn't realize it was quite that early either at first. So this book takes place in the country of Borogravia, which is on Discworld, but it's not the main, um, Ankmore pork centered um, location that we usually get with our Discworld books. Um, the country is kind of a theocratic dictatorship run by their god Nuggin, which, by the way, leads to some really fun wordplay with things like the Nugganites. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Uh, who mainly serve to declare abominations. Um, and lately the list has gotten so long and so ridiculous that a lot of people believe that Nuggan might be dead or insane or maybe both. Who knows? Um, there's also a duchess who serves as a type of intercessor for the people who may or may not also be dead. Um, the country's impoverished thanks to um, the abom abominations that have gone out against things like chocolate, which used to be one of their main exports, um, and also thanks to the many wars with their neighboring countries, um, lots of uh, border disputes and things. Okay, the main po uh, character is Polly Perks, who works at her family's tavern, which is also called the Duchess. Um, Polly... Polly's brother has joined the army and gone missing, so she decides to try to rescue him by joining the army disguised as a boy. And when she enlists, she meets the other main characters in the book, a group of obvious misfits led by the spiteful Corporal Strappy and the bellicose Sergeant Jackram. And later we also meet uh, Sergeant Blouse, the enlisted officer, who is one of the only actual men in the book. Um, the unlikely group of vampire, troll, Igor, and inexperienced young boys is kind of a foreshadowing of the trouble that the country's in, since most of the regular fighting force have already been killed or captured. Gradually, Polly discovers that pretty much all of her fellow recruits are also female, although they enlisted for a variety of different reasons. She also discovers that they have almost completely lost the war. Their regiment is, in fact, the only Borgravian detail at large. Um, they decide to trade try to take back their own keep from their Slobinian enemies, and on the way, they encounter a group of enemy soldiers that includes, unbeknownst to them at the time, the Slobinian prince in disguise. And uh, Polly kind of humiliates him, um, not intentionally, but thanks to a cameo by William DeWord um, from the novel The Truth, among others, their story gets out and the regiment is made famous. Eventually, they do infiltrate the keep, ironically dressed as women, and manage to release their fellow soldiers and launch a counterattack from within. Once it's discovered that they are women, they're brought before a kind of military tribunal. And while everyone is debating what to do with them, Sergeant Jackram comes in and reveals that many of the military leadership are, in fact, also female. 
Also during this scene, um, the spirit of the Duchess possesses one of Polly's fellow soldiers, nicknamed Wazer, and she tells everyone to stop fighting and stop praying to her. Eventually, a truce is established, the rules are changed to allow women to serve openly in the military, and Polly reveals that Sergeant Jackram is also, in fact, a female. Polly does find her brother, and they all return home, only to re-enter military service at the end of the book when the next bloody stupid thing happens again. Thank you so much for that super, um, super clear summary. Um, it really gives us a great uh, jumping off point to talk about some of the historical context with some of the concepts in this book. And uh, we're going to defer to you on that, Jay, because you're the expert. So wh- what can you tell us um, as far as the uh, the John Knox text and any other historical context in this book? Well, the title does come from John Knox uh, 1558 pamphlet, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women in which, in my opinion, Knox takes far too long and too many words to say that he is not a fan of female rulers in general and Catholic female rulers in particular. Um, At the time he was writing, you've got uh, Mary of Guise, Mary Stuart, and Mary Tudor all either ruling or influencing the affairs of Scotland and England and, I think, parts of France. So he's using his position as a Protestant leader to try to attack these Catholic women rulers. Um, his arguments essentially boil down to his the idea that God has ordained men to rule, which he knows because that's how men have interpreted it throughout all of history. And when it comes to the Bible talking about specific women who held leadership positions such as Deborah, he attempts to reinterpret scripture to his own ends. And when he can't do so, he claims that we can't know the mysteries of the mind of God, but certainly he couldn't have intended women to rule. Uh, He reminded me of certain um, groups online and in their arguments, taking much too long to say much, anyway, much too long to say a lot that's wrong. Um, As when it comes to military history, I had a hard time placing this in a specific I guess, area, because it does pull off of a long line of military history. For example, the belligerent state of Burgravia, in my mind, was representative of the former Soviet republics, uh, from the focus on motherhood and the veneration of their proud sons, down to the ever-present picture of their uh, leader, the Duchess, on every wall. Then again, the same argument could have been made for uh, 19th and 20th century Britain, in the wars in Africa and in World War I and World War II. It really could be almost any time at any place. And then as we talked about earlier, the book is written in 2003, right around the time you've got the lead up to the War on Terror. Um, Tony Blair, President Bush are getting their coalition together to go in to the Middle East. So he's playing off of popular fears as well. Uh, A few things that appear throughout the book are the idea of folk songs and songs that the soldiers sang, many of which are exactly the same or very similar to our own. There's one in par- or a few in particular, uh, The World Turned Upside Down, which was played when uh, Cornwallis surrendered to Washington in the American Revolution. Uh, the Devil Shall Be My Sergeant, traditionally played for a dishonorable discharge. Johnny Has Gone for a Soldier, Uh, That one was played throughout Irish history and then also gained popularity in the American Civil War. The Girl I Left Behind Me, which was popular during in Elizabethan England, 
And then one of special note, Sweet Polly Oliver, a folk song about a woman who dresses as a male soldier to follow her true love, and from which our uh, main character gets both her names. Um, she is given the name Polly, and then when she enlists, she goes in as Oliver Perks. So I found that kind of interesting. Uh, I can't really speak to how it actually plays off of the military, having never been in the military myself. But I do know that the language that uh, Pratchett uses um, reflects the military's propensity for crassness without actually coming out and being profane. Um, if you're a fan of Double Entendre, this is the book for you. Yeah, you know, um, Ellie, I'd be really interested to get Brian's take on this book because, you know, having as someone who's been through basic training and done all, all that stuff, I, I wonder, you know, has he, did, has he ever said if he feels like it's at all accurate to what it's like to be a young soldier? Um, yes, actually, I have that in there. We were going to talk about that later. But yeah, he um, the I could say at least the jokes and everything are very on point for um, what he has experienced in his time in the, the army infantry. There, the joke, his favorite one is the one about um, when uh, the blouse, Sergeant blouse is um, mad because they stole some food and um, blouse says, you know, there's a name for, for someone who does that. And Jack arm turns around and says, uh, yeah, it's quartermaster. Well done. And uh, cause it's not stealing. It's strategic acquisition. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he said that's a pretty common t uh, joke and definitely on the nose for the uh, the style of humor of, of being in the military. Um, well, now that we've got some really, really good kind of um, context and um, good deep summary of the book, we're going to kind of um, just kind of go around and, and, and work through some discussion questions, some things that we thought um, we might like to tease out about the book a little bit. And um, so given that this is the Christian Feminist Podcast, um, the first question that I wanted to pose this evening is that um, given that none of these women in the book um, who go into the army, given that none of them initially sets out to intending to blaze the trail of female military service, in what ways do we would we consider this text feminist? And um, either one of you guys can kind of chime in first with that. I don't know if I'm actually qualified to answer that question. <laughs> um. When I was reading it, it was almost reminiscent to me of some of the other discussions that you've had on the podcast about egalitarianism versus complementarianism, exactly what roles women fulfill and how they're perceived in society. How, how about you, Elia? Yeah, I think um, when you were asking that, like, Pratchett's known for being good at writing women, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that he doesn't actually write women. He writes characters, and he treats all of his characters as unique individuals. There's there's not common threads throughout a lot of the women in his books um, that, that kind of, you know, lump them together as a particular type of, of person. Um, so in in a way, all of his books could be considered feminist books because he treats men and women as equal. And they're, you know, men and women are just as likely to be some kind of crazy stereotype to prove one of his satirical points as they are to be um, a deep and thoughtful portrayal of, you know, a certain struggle. Um, and I think that's that's one of the big successes of this book, um, that it begins with the question of gender identity and gender roles, but it moves past that to questions of self-identity, you know, on a broader scale. Um, but we do we do have a female main character, and so we do get to see through her eyes um, the observations of a, at least ostensibly male-dominated society. 
um, and a male-dominated subculture in the military specifically. Um, there's lots of observations kind of throughout, lots of throwaway lines, um, observing traditional femininity versus traditional masculinity. Um, Polly notices differences in how others treat her when she's dressed as a man, um, and also how she thinks of others when she perceives them as male or female. So it's not just that she's criticizing the world, um, but she actually notices that she even changes adjectives when she realizes that one of her fellow soldiers is actually a woman. She, she stops referring to them as um, small and starts referring to them as petite, you know, just little changes like that that affect, you know, our inner voice as well as the way people, you know, listen to her differently. And, and she talks about people talk to you differently and they listen to you differently. Um, and I think there's also a really powerful subplot um, about a, a few of the soldiers who came from a girl's home for quote unquote bad girls is what they call it in the book. Um, and there are insights throughout the book about different ways that the girls deal with the trauma of coming from this abusive um, place and uh, some pretty piercing observations about how society treats girls and women who don't conform to societal expectations um, versus how it treats the men. Um, that's not the part of the book that most people talk about or even really remember, but it does provide maybe the most heartbreaking moments of the book. And from a feminist perspective, it's it's a pretty powerful subject to shine a light on, I think. Yeah, I there were a couple of things that I noticed. And I think one of the, I, I would definitely agree with you about saying that Pratchett writes great women, women characters because he just writes great people. I would, I would 100% agree with that. And I think, I mean, he writes women better than almost any, any man I've, I've ever read. Um, but I think a big part of that is because when I, when you, when I read Terry Pratchett's female characters, I don't necessarily tend to think about, oh, these are women talking right now as women. Um, they, they kind of just, they do their thing. Um, and that's not to say that they're, you know, it's all kind of flattened and that there's no gender distinctions because there are. But one thing I think is interesting in this book, um, is that, um, there are some very direct lessons it feels like he's trying to teach, but one of the things to me that comes across in a more subtle way that he doesn't hammer on is um, the this that there are similarities between these young women and um, young soldiers who, even if they were men, there would be. For example, they're told um, by you know Sergeant Jackram, and they're 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 encouraged in various places to look out for your squad. You look out for the people around you. You're fighting for the men next to you. It's not about the higher ups, right? And that to me, um, that idea you see come through very clearly in their small group of female soldiers. And and it's most pronounced with, um, I think it was, I always think of them in names, Tonker and Lofty, the two girls who came from the girls' home mm-hmm. um, together. Yeah, that's them. Um, they, they are very much a dyad, right? They look out for each other the most, but you see it in a larger group too. They all kind of have each other's back. And, you know, what you kind of come away with is the impression that, you know, young soldiers look out for young soldiers, whether they're women or men, right? They're looking out for their squad or their, their group. Um, and, you know, also there are other places where he emphasizes um, like similarities rather than differences. Like when Polly cuts off her long, beautiful golden hair to go to war, she's momentarily annoyed that that's all she has to do to pass for a boy. Um, and, yes. Right. And she's and like, which she I mean, even doesn't get like, she has trouble passing for a girl later. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and part of that is her own annoyance at her lack of breasts, which is just true. But also, I think, you know, it, to me, there's another, there's something else behind those words, which is he's, he's, he's kind of showing up that, you know, we think of women and men as so fundamentally different. On the other hand, you know, all of these girls for a while were able to pass as boys simply by putting on boy clothes. Um, and, you know, trying to do a certain walk. And that's another thing I think that feels a little feministy to me about this book is that um, particularly when you look at the, the ways that these girls talk about boys and the ways the things they do to appear like boys, it, you know, they're they're not trying to look or, or it's these boys they're imagining that they're trying to be like are not lords of creation. You know, they're like, yeah, you got to got to pick your nose more. And, you know, you need to belch a little more like it's all very kind of, um, you know, it doesn't make sound it doesn't make young male soldiers sound that awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they're not like every man of them is not Captain America. These guys like or, you know, the types of boys that they've seen. Um, and I, another thing that I like about this book that, I, that feels very feminist, I guess, to me, is that the multiplicity of motives that these women have for going to war. They're all there for very different reasons. And none of them shows up because they want to prove they can do it. Um, but I think um, that, you know, in some ways, some of these some of these reasons they've come, you might think of as more traditionally female, right? Shufti shows up because she's pregnant and she's trying to find the guy who got her pregnant. Um, and uh, Polly is, like you said before, Polly is looking for her brother. And she definitely, it's made clear in the book, she takes a nurturing role towards him, even though he's slightly older than she is. Um, the way he's described, and I don't know if Pratchett was trying to, I don't know what he was exactly trying to say about what her brother Paul is like. But the way that, the way that her brother Paul is described reminds me of my son who has autism. Um, yeah, I describes, agree with that too. I think yeah, it's like, pretty clear there's something going on there, yeah. And um, she describes him as a type of person who is very gentle and very sweet, but is very easily led and believes everything he's told. And he gets carried away by the idea of joining the army. Um, and, you know, when she finds him at the end, finally, she's so relieved because whoever is watching out for him has given him a, a box of colored chalks. And he's just happily drawing pictures. And I'm like, that's my buddy. Like it's, I mean, it, so, you know, she's kind of mothered him and you, and this is so interesting to me too. And this is also a bit of history, I guess. So she ends up, she, she is kind of chosen slash quasi volunteers to be the Batman for, um, Batman, Batman. I'm not, when I say it, Batman, it sounds yeah, like a superhero. Yeah. Okay. Um, for, um, Lieutenant Blouse. And so she's kind of his personal body servant, um, which is a very traditional thing, um, with the British aristocracy. But um, at a certain point, she just kind of shifts into mother mode on him and asks him to spit on a handkerchief so she can clear off his face, wipe off his face. And, you know, is like, make sure you go to the bathroom before you get on the boat and just goes full mom on him. And yeah. that was really funny because it's it's a very kind of more girly moment, I guess you would call it. But at the same time, I think he's trying to say something about, you know, the Batman and, you know, the level of care that they were probably giving these, these young officers that they were in charge of. It makes me think a little bit of, um, of uh, well, obviously it makes me think of Sam Gamgee. Um, but also it makes me think a little bit of uh, Bunter, Lord Peter Wimsey's manservant, mm -hmm. who was not, who was and not, Wooster. and Jeeves and Wooster, yeah, um, which Bunter wasn't actually Lord Peter's Batman, but he definitely played that role after the war. Um, but yeah, let's kind of um, move forward because, like I said, this book has lots of lessons that, and lots of ideas that Pratchett wants to get across. One of the big ones is kind of a feminist um, idea, but the other major thing I think happening in here is, besides war, is religion. So um, what is Pratchett trying to say about religion 
via the Duchess, whose picture they pray to, but also Nuggin, who's their actual god. Jay, why don't you go first this time? Okay. Um. So Pratchett is not a Christian by any sense of the word. I think he was a uh, a humanist. Um. I think maybe a uh, let's see, have it here somewhere. Yeah, he was a secular humanist, but at the same time, he's not anti-religion. He always leaves room for something that can't be explained or the supernatural. Um, he wants religion to make sense in a way. I think of Pratchett almost like um, a kind of Aristotle, someone who came as close to the truth as humanly possible, but he didn't have God. He couldn't take that next step. Um, he's not actually hostile to religion. He does want us to think about the consequences of our beliefs. Um, a quote that shows up several times in his witches novel and then in the novel that he wrote with Neil Gaiman, Good Omens, is something along the lines of, if you stop telling people it's all sorted out after they're dead, they might try sorting it all out while they're alive. He wants people to think of people as people, not just other objects moving about in the world. So from my perspective, I looked at it from um, Hosea 6, 6, which says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Um, you know, blind obedience does no good. We see what happened to the Borogravians and their blind, blind obedience to Nuggan. They pretty much ruined their country. You know, they abdicated their responsibility to think for themselves and, you know, try to outlaw babies, which that didn't work at all. Um, it might come across that that Pratchett kind of lampoons religion, and he does, but at the same time, he examines what faith means, what it means to believe in something. And so, uh, you know, I know it's not further reading, but if we wanted to examine, he writes about faith in other books like Hogfather and Pyramids and um, oh, Small Gods, you know, which deal very much with how humans form belief and what they place their faith and trust in. So he's saying almost, you know, it's okay to believe something, but whatever you're believing, remember to think of people as people. Yeah, um, in, in Carpe Jugulum, Granny Weatherwax tells um, the Omnian priest guy that um, sin is treating people like things. Yes. And and that, and that and and he's like, well, but it's more complicated than that. And she's like, yeah, but what it starts with is treating people like things. Um, that is another book, Carpe Jugulum, that has a ton to say about um, faith, especially particularly faith versus doubt, mm -hmm. and why do you believe what you believe, and um, is it really mattering in your life? Um, there's this whole kind of speech that Granny gives him in that book about how um, if she really, really believed that there was a God that truly cared. Um, for people, she would not just be timidly trying to be nice and sing hymns and have buns together. Like, and he kind of is terrified thinking if she ever found a religion she actually believed in, what kind of revival would come sweeping down out of the mountains? Like, mm -hmm. um, and so I love that. Um, and I, and I think, you know, um, 
this book's interesting to me because it almost, you know, the Omnians are the ones that are painted as, as kind of silly the most, I feel like, in this world, um, you know, because, but in part because they have rules that they adhere to, you know, things they abstain from. Um, they take the religion very seriously. And, you know, I kind of thought before I read this book that the Omnians were about as intense as religion was going to get in this world. But then this book happened and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, no, um, not even a little bit. Uh, what, do you, what are you thinking about this particular question, Ilya? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, I, I read it a little bit differently. I think I read it a little bit more like he's a little bit harsher towards um, organized religion. I mean, he he definitely, and from all of his interviews and everything, he doesn't have a problem with somebody believing something, but he um, he takes a, a, a pretty strong stance against uh, any organized religion, especially that's going to say that, that if you're not a part of that religion, then you're wrong um, or something like that. Um, in general, you know, I think he says, he feels like it it can be very damaging and especially religious extremism, um, which is what we're dealing with here. Right. I think in general, um, the Omnian church um, on the Discworld is kind of a parody for like the Catholic Anglican organized, you know, religion, Um, not, you know, a one-to-one correspondence, but generally, Um, but this is a, like you said, this is a step for, this is into extremism. Um, I I laughed out loud when um, they said that, uh, babies were declared an abomination to Nuggin, and someone said, "Well, I mean, of course they still make them, but they just feel guilty about it, you know." <laughs> so the idea that, like, you know, as long as you feel guilty about it, it's okay. Um, but um, the the people's devotion to Nuggin comes across by this point, and it, it kind of implies that for a while it was a reasonable religion, and it has gotten more fanatical and nonsensical and detrimental to Borgravian society as things have gone along, as these abominations have kind of come haphazardly down from, you know, wherever they come from. Um, and, and then, but I also think that the Duchess is separate from the discussion of religion. I think that the Duchess is a symbol of like political devotion. And so he's kind of lampooning both the devotion to um, extreme religion and devotion to extreme nationalism or extreme patriotism or something like that. Um, and then especially countries that blur the lines between the two, um, where the the head of state is also the head of the church, like, you know, Great Britain, of course, is where he's from. Um, and uh, so he's kind of showing that politics and religion, especially extreme politics and extreme religion, are two sides of the same fanatical coin. Um and uh, especially because, you know, we find out that both God is dead and also the head of the state is dead. Um, so they're all being kind of led by this blind faith in nothing. Um, and it's also, I think, important to note that on the Discworld, um, like belief dictates reality a lot of times. So yep. like in Small Gods, you know, that they show that like the gods get their life from belief. It's not, it's not like we would think the gods are there. And so we believe in them. It's, we believe in them. And so they're there. And so that's kind of what we see here is that so many people pray to the Duchess that she kind of becomes this quasi quasi God. um, And she's trapped in this limbo where she, you know, was a human and now she's dead, but she can't pass on because these prayers. And, and uh, so that's kind of just a little, a side note into how he kind of created this world and also a little bit how he sees, I think, reality um sir terry like this idea that our belief kind of congeals and makes things re- real in a in a way and when you mentioned you mentioned the duchess so let's let's talk about for a minute um Wazer, who is the one who's being basically possessed by the duchess who's very much kind of written as a joan of arc figure does that does that work how what do we think about that particular plot element yeah i'm not i'm not crazy about that part <laughs> um it's it's very sir terry like i said um mm-hmm. 
he rejects organized religion and fundamentalism, but he never rules out the idea that there is a supernatural. Um, and he's talked about in his interviews about um, kind of feeling the presence of, of a loved one who has died with him and that, you know, he does believe that there is some kind of spiritual supernatural um, realm. So it, it's in his character to write this in there about the Duchess speaking through the, you know, true believer. Um, I, I didn't find it to be the most meaningful part of the story um, just because the book has so much else to say about, you know, the rest of the characters and their kind of trajectory. But um, I, I'm not surprised that it was in there, though. Yeah, to me, she felt almost shoehorned in, like he was writing the great the great military parody. So obviously he had to have some kind of a Joan of Arc figure mm-hmm. in it, who, who we're told from the beginning is literally the ex machina that's going to fix everything. You know, we that it's not a surprise how she ends up. Um, but at the same time, she's she's not really a Joan of Arc figure, from what I know or understand from history. Joan of Arc was quite outspoken. Wazer is not. Um, you know, obvious. Wazer makes it through to the end of the war. Joan of Arc didn't. Um, yeah, it, it just it kind of fell flat for me. Mm-hmm. There's. You know, I, I think I, I, I like the idea of having a character who is a no holds barred true believer in this religion, though. That's the interesting part to me. Like the she's kind of going to be the thing that saves us the the kind of military tied up with the religion Joan of Arc thing with her. I don't love. But I do think it's really interesting having a character in there who has that intense devotion because, you know, we're told, oh, everybody, you know, everybody is, tries to believe this. They try to do a good job, but it's, you know, our God is so unreasonable, you know, um, but, you know, to have, then to have, after you've kind of been told that a little bit at the beginning of the book to then encounter a character who believes implicitly, um, that it's all true. And, um, we're told that she prays like a child, like she screws her eyes shut really tight and like clenches her hands and kind of prays out loud. And, you know, it's just this, the, it's, it's this intense level of sincerity that makes everybody else uncomfortable. And that's really interesting to me because particularly based on some of the other things that he says in Carpe Jugum and other books, you know, if you're thinking about, if this is a world where belief determines existence, um, then it really does matter. A, a God needs true believers in the disc world, right. To, to, to continue to exist. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, she's keeping the Duchess alive in a way. Um, but so it's that, that part of it to me is, was interesting. Um, let's move on to, um, the end of the book because it's, it's an interesting ending. Um, and, uh, to, you know, we talked a little bit about this listeners, but basically at the end, the end can be summarized in like three words, which is everyone's a woman. Which not literally not everyone, um, you know, Lieutenant Blouse isn't a woman. Um, I think that when, you know, um, Sergeant Jackram sends out, he sends out all the officers out of the room who are actually men. They don't know why they don't know that that's why they've been sent out. But he was going to confront these officers who are actually women. Um, and I think that he says a third or a half of the group, the original group that had been in the room is what remains. So a lot. I mean, a lot of them. Um does the ending kind of, does it, does the support or does it undercut what the rest of the book is trying to do? Yeah, I'll jump on this one. Cause I, okay, I got good. thoughts on this. <laughs> um, I don't think it undercuts anything because I don't think that Pratchett is trying to say that, well, if women were in charge, things would be different. Um, I think that's maybe what the typical Mulan, you know, woman dresses as man and then saves the world type story might try to say, but 
it's it's Sertari. I mean, he's going to subvert the ex expectations and then subvert the subversions just just for fun. Um, at the very end, Polly says uh, the enemy wasn't men or women or the old or even the dead. It was just bleeding stupid people who came in all varieties. And I really think that that is the the thesis of the book. Um, I think the book begins by making you think it's going to be about a woman who proves she can do things as good as a man or better. Um, but then it ends up asking you, wait, is that is that even what you want? Is that even the goal? Um, when we see that there are, in fact, women in pretty much every position already, we see that we still don't have this, you know, utopia, this happy ending. We get the same bleeding, stupid people who come in all varieties, still starting wars and making bad choices. And so I think what this book does, what it, it does, what it sets out to do, which is to get us past the cliche question of can a woman do what a man can do? And onto more important questions like, should anybody be doing any of this at all? And to me, that is a feminist success because it's not about putting women on a pedestal and saying, oh, if only women ran the world, we'd do it right. It's saying, look, we're all messed up. We're all sinful. We're all flawed. Um, and we're all making choices that affect the world for, for good or bad. And so we have to, you know, step up all of us and, and take control of that. I don't know. I. I know I'm coming at it from a very different perspective. In, in some ways, it did undercut the rest of the story for me, if only because of all of the attention that's put on clothing, for whatever reason. I found it interesting that even even after the end, even after the war is over, we know everyone's everyone's a woman, the women still only get recognized if they're dressed as men. Like they get that they get a special female uniform and and things like that. But at the very end of the book, and we'll get there at the end, we find them altering it to go back to the way things were that they they don't get respect. They don't get the not I don't want to say attention, but they don't really make progress unless they're dressed as men. Even Sergeant Jackram isn't able to be herself. She has to stay in guise as a man to get the ending that she wants. I think in part that's because, you know, um, if she went, if she went back as, as, as a, as a woman, um, you know, she would be going back and, and re-meeting her son after years and years and years, whatever, since he was really, since he was a baby, she hasn't seen him, um, as just like kind of a crazy seeming old lady, um, because, you know, of having lived her life, you know, not as, I mean, you know, what's she going to say about her life, what she's been doing all that time, she might have to lie, whereas Polly points out that if, um, if Sergeant Jackram goes home as granddad, not grandma, you know, because there's, there's grandchildren, then, you know, um, he can kind of be um, super cool granddad who was in the army. And, you know, in that case, and it is, it's a little bit sad on the one hand because, you know, we might look at that with, you know, I feel like right now in, the, in, in our place, in our time, we have this fetish for authenticity. So we might look at that and go, well, that's terrible. Like, that's terrible that, you know, even after, um, you know, all of this is done, after the military is done, that she still is living a lie. On the other hand, it's made clear through the book that the life of, you know, that the military life is what she wanted to lead. You know, they keep talking about Sergeant Jackram's been honorably discharged like 18 times or something and just keeps coming back again. Like, and, you know, that, so in some ways I would say that, that going home to, you know, her, her son and grandkids as Sergeant Jackram, the guy is actually more her true self. Um, and because that's the life she's, she's then living the life she's chosen to live for the previous 40 years or whatever that they say that she's been in the military. Um, I think 
I think the ending does undercut the rest a little bit only because of the sheer volume. To me, it could have been really more effectual if you had had some of these other recruits maybe be female, um, maybe Sergeant Jackram be female. I think that the more people that the the more people that turn out to be women, I feel like it it with every person additional person it blunts the impact a little bit maybe. Um, but that's just me. I don't know. Like you know, because like like Polly said, at a certain point she keeps finding out more and more of her fellow recruits are women, and she says at a certain point it like just it doesn't even register anymore. She's like I'm not even surprised. Like of course that person's also a woman. You know, um, and so even that, the horse is actually a woman. That's one of my yeah. favorite right? little satiric yes. jokes that the stallion ends up actually being a mare. Like every everybody's actually female, and 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 it frustrated me a little bit too, simply because because they're all women. The only really the only man in the book that we ever really get to spend any decent time with, man from Bora Gravy, is Lieutenant Blouse. Like, I would have been really interested to maybe have a few more male characters in there. Some of the, the, the military leadership who are actually male, I would think it would have been really interesting to see, you know, um, some conflict there between, you know, actually male um, military leadership and then the ones that turn out to be female. But because so many at the upper levels are women and Sergeant Jackram's known it all along, so he kind of has that blackmail power. Um and, and because the ultimate, the general, General Frock, who's head of the entire, you know, army, it turns out to be a woman. Um, I don't know. It, it, it just, in, in terms of purely a, a plot, as a plot device, it undercuts it a little bit for me. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, there was another thing, and I'm trying to remember now about the end. Um, oh, I, I think it's interesting, too. I really like the ending because most of these women, you know, after the war... They have their, their military adventure, whatever. They go on to other lives, right? So, <laughs> you know, Lofty and Tonker are out robbing banks and, you know, burning, burning down, down the workhouse. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Shifty ends up going back with Polly to the, the inn. Um, I, that, to me, is one of the more, one of the more feministy parts of this book, I think, is when she finds the young man who got her pregnant and decides, I don't need him. I don't want that. I like you know yes. she's gone looking for him the whole time and they say is his him and she says no that's not him even though it really is um that's really interesting and then she goes back to the duchess with polly and and really settles in there and and is like a valued member of the household and you know her little baby's adorable and and polly's brother can look after the little baby and she kind of becomes the female center of that household because at the end of the book right polly decides to go back into the military and so she's kind of deciding to become Sergeant Jackrow 2.0 in a way. Not not exactly the same because she's serving openly as a woman. But she is, you know, she she lines up and she's talking just like Sergeant Jackrow, right? And she says, you're my little lads um, to them. But the difference is that she, you know, some, some, some girls show up dressed like men. And she says, basically, I can tell that you're women, you know, and they're kind of, oh no what's going to happen now and she basically says you can serve as women if you want but it's it's up to you like it's your choice right and, and that's interesting too. if you're if you sign up as a man yes <laughs> yeah like so it's not it's not this like she doesn't make some speech about female empowerment mm-hmm. and about how you should all serve openly as women and we're going to be awesome amazons over here mm-hmm. instead it's about autonomy self-autonomy you know um you you make the choice how you want to to do what you want to do yeah yeah the, the, the cursing thing is hilarious too that's how she figures out shifty's a woman because she says sugar sugar something <laughs> bad happens hilarious um well um let me get down let me see um i think i had one or two more questions um i know jay you had mentioned that you you had some thoughts about 
how the book would look through a kind of LGBTQ lens. Did you want to say a few things about that, either of you guys? That, that was actually just a question. I really don't know that I can answer that. So I, I have that, some thoughts that, on that. That was my question. Yeah. Um, well, go go for that, Leah. What were you thinking about that yeah, question? Because that's I a just, great question. I just think it's a good one. Yeah, it is. It's a really good question, Jay, to, um, to just kind of evaluate from that lens because we do see – like a whole spectrum of gender manifestation. We see um, uh, Lofty and, is it Lofty and Tonker? Yeah. They're, yes. uh, you know, in a relationship. We see them holding hands. We see them, they're always together. It's it's very clear that they're in some kind of relationship that's, that's a romantic relationship. Um, and we have, like we were saying earlier, uh, Sergeant Jackroom, who's pretty near trans male. Um, I say near because it seems like Jackron wants to return to identifying as a woman until it's suggested that maybe it would be easier for him, her to, to identify as a man in order to fit in with society, not necessarily because that's what they want, but because that's what would be the easiest for everybody, you know, around his family and everything. Um, but, but it's a, it's a pretty interesting look at somebody who maybe identifies as another gender and doesn't even really realize it. Um, but then we also get some throwaway jokes about another character who's um, talked about, but I don't think ever really seen who was trans, um, who's kind of there for laughs and that's, you know, well, iffy. Um, but most of all, we see Polly struggling to reconcile her feminine characteristics with her newfound masculine ones um, you know, this kind of, um, she, she talks about trying to leave the girl in her behind, but bringing it with her. Um, she talks about the, the socks that she puts in her pants to pass as a man, um, kind of doing the thinking sometimes. And, um, there's a lot of references to that. And, um, so I think like, I think that this book looks at gender identity differently. Um, and the thing it reminded me of is in, um, in Thief of Time, you remember the auditor's Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that. Great people. Yeah, that they become more human the longer they manifest as human. And again, this is kind of um, Sir Terry's idea of form or, you know, form following function or function following form, like the question of which follows which, um, because we see echoes of that here, where the longer these women manifest as men, the more they seem to take on traditionally male characteristics, which is, you know, all the references to the socks doing the thinking and everything. So instead of all of these characteristics that we think of as you know, typically male, even things like poor hygiene, like you said, or whatever, or violent tendencies, aggression, that kind of thing. Um, instead of them being inherent to a specific gender, um, in this book, we see them as roles that characters can step in and out of, like changing clothes. Um, and and then it also goes further into a lot of other discussions of identity throughout the book, um, of, into things like finding your identity in your political beliefs, in your patriotism, in your family, in your home. So So we see gender identity as one piece of you know this our lives it, it takes it away from the central identity that uh, a very conservative traditional um place like borgravia puts it in you know they have very strong gender role um ideals and and we see this book kind of take that away and give gender identity as one of many pieces of our identity that we get to choose like you said um and and we can choose these behaviors and adopt them or refrain from adopting them as we will and I think that's a really interesting way to look at kind of gender spectrum identity um, it, without necessarily being like preachy about it, you know, coming at it in a way that feels not aggressive, but but does open up a lot of interesting questions. 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, because it's also this is also presented in the context where you've got several people in this book who are, you know, female and they're masquerading as male, but they're also not even human. So that you've got a vampire True. and a troll and um, Sergeant Angua shows up. So you've got a werewolf in there, too, at different points. Um, and, you know, um, and she, you know, in earlier watch books had her own journey of figuring out that, you know, nobody cares that she's a woman as mm-hmm. long as she acts like a man. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. OK, she's um, one of my favorites, and, too, since Peter yeah, Clay was oh, yeah. my first um, book. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. That one's so good. That one's really interesting too, Feet of Clay, because then you have all the talk. And this reminded me a bit too of all the talk, all, all the the dwarf stuff and all the Pratchett books. The whole point is that mm-hmm. dwarves you can't really tell if they're male or female unless they tell you that they are. And then when the when the female dwarfs start dressing like women, there's like a furor, right? Um, so that's also interesting. Um, and so you know, with that thrown in too, it's just it, it it also it just shakes it all up. And so I agree, you know, that it, it foregrounds it even more. The idea that you said, Leah, that it's part of your identity it's not um something you know and this book is not saying on any level you must choose you know um which right. you will be right and 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 so it's you know um and that that is, is is very interesting and i think kind of would be very interesting to anyone who is kind of you know um thinking through ideas of gender fluidity or anything like that um but we, we're getting kind of long so we're gonna we're gonna cut kind of towards the end we're gonna answer a few quick questions um one is who is your favorite character in the book? Jay, you go first. Uh, favorite character from this particular book would have to be Maledicta. Um, I relate to her coffee addiction on an almost spiritual level. Um, at one point she says, I am a bundle of suppressed instincts held together by spit and coffee. That pretty much sums, <laughs> so much sums You need that on a t-shirt. Yeah, yes. Definitely. <laughs> I, need, I need that on a t-shirt. If I knew how to cross-stitch, it would be cross-stitched and put on the wall. Um, and then I also, you know, she gets, when she, when she loses her coffee, she ends up getting what they call in the book side flashes, which end up being like, um, she ends up in like a Vietnam type situation in, in what would be our world. So we get kind of a glimpse of what she would have been like if she'd been in a film like Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket, something like that. Anyway. How about you? Uh, Ilea? I don't really have a favorite from the, from this book specifically. It would be, you know, Death or Vimes um, or Angua, one of the ones that it's like seeing an old friend come back, you know, hey, I, I love you. Um, but I, I like the characters in this book. They're interesting, but I, I don't necessarily have one that really resonates with me. I, I, I would say if I had to pick a favorite in this book, I, I really do. I really do enjoy Polly Perks. I think she's interesting. And I think that, um, and part of that's because you get a lot more, I mean, you, she's the viewpoint character. So you get her thoughts um, about everything that's happening. But um, I like her, in and in, in, at least in small part too, I like her because she reminds me of um, some other characters, particularly Tiffany Aching, and that she's a person who's smarter than pretty much everybody else around her, but she's not regarded as such because she's a young woman. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, she, and I especially like the parts where she talked about um, the old soldier men in the pub teaching her how to sword fight. Yes, I and, underlined that um, whole section. Yes, even though it's an abom- even though women holding a sword is an abomination in Tanuggan, they teach her and she and she figures out that she needs to, she acts clumsy for a lot longer than she actually is clumsy because she figures out that they will tolerate her as long as it's funny. And that kind of self-awareness of she's playing to their expectations, she's playing up to their stereotypes, even though that's not the reality at all, um, is really interesting. So I think she's probably my favorite. Um, and then the one other quick end question is, um, how does this compare for you to other Pratchett novels? 
Well, it is certainly different. Um, I keep coming back to one particular phrase from the book. Uh, it's, I forget who's talking, but they say, you think you're the hero and it turns out you're really part of someone else's story. And it's not just the characters and how they relate to each other, but it's almost how we as readers relate to the Discworld. You know, um, by 2003, the, there's been 30 some odd books, I think, already written. So we've, we've gotten used to the Discworld and we've, we, we, you know, we have our favorite characters. And then all of a sudden we're thrown into a book that's from the opposite perspective, where the characters that we've come to know and love are considered the enemy. Um, and not many of the other books in the series do that. There might be two or three others that, that step outside of that realm of comfort. Yeah, I think um, for me, like two of Terry Pratchett's biggest strengths are his humor and his characters. Um, and like you said, Katie, at the very beginning, this book doesn't have quite the usual humor. Um, it's not it's not as funny. I mean, there are funny parts to it, but it's not as you know overwhelmingly humorous. Um, but it does have a wide range of characters and they are interesting. Um, the, I think it's different from a lot of his other stories because it is so self-contained. We don't get the depth of character development and the interwoven story arcs that we can get from, you know, the series of watch books or the, you know, the however many witches books it is that really let us see who Granny Weatherwax is in a bunch of different situations. You know, we just see this one little story arc. So that is a little bit different. Yeah. And spatially that that's also true. I didn't think about that. So you were just saying it, but um, you know, in a lot of the other books, you know, like, in the death books, you're in various locations because death can go anywhere. And, you know, and in and, and some of the other books, like Witches Abroad, they travel lots of different places. But even the ones that are set in Ink Warpork and you never leave Ink Warpork, you still get a much deeper sense of place. You get the feel that this is a huge city. There's tons of people here. They're, you know, they're mentioning different streets all the time. But this story is very much this place, this time. It's a tiny country next to another tiny country. So much of the book happens in the keep. Like, mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's very self-contained, um, in a way that, and, and almost, and it almost feels unreal a little bit too, because there's not a lot of description of what anything looks like. Like when you're in, um, in the witch's books, whenever you're in the Ram tops, he does lots of, there's always lots of great descriptions of the mountains, like the impenetrable forest and there's ditches with stuff mm -hmm. in them, you know, and like, and it's very physical. There's a, very, a lot of physical description. Um, but this book doesn't have as much of that, you know, it's very focused on these people. Um, and you get some descriptions of some inside, um, like the, the big drafty barracks that they're hanging out in for a bit at the beginning. Um, and they're like trying to figure out how to cook their horse meat to make it taste better. Like that scene is pretty, you know, pretty evocative for me. But um, yeah, I think that there's, I would agree with that, that the kind of, there's not so much of a depth of um, even of place, like, and, and also that other stuff that you said. Um, so it is very much, um, I would say more than a lot of his other novels, it, it can, it can stand alone. Uh -huh. A person could pick this up and read it and they wouldn't. And even if they didn't, and they might not even realize that Captain Vimes is like a recurring character and it wouldn't matter. Like, you know, uh -huh. um, and I, I don't, I mean, that makes me love it less, but it could make it better for someone who didn't want to have to read all that other stuff first to be able to enjoy this particular novel. Um, well, we're going to skip to recommendations now, listeners, because we're running a little long. So um, what are we recommending um, tonight? And Jay, you can go first. Sure. Um, I think it's kind of obvious that we'll uh, recommend some of Pratchett's other work. So I'm going to go ahead and recommend the Tiffany Aching series, which I think, that, in my personal opinion, gets fem feminism right, or at least in Terry Pratchett's world, gets it a little bit better than perhaps 
is evident in Monstrous Regiment. And then if you need an antidote after reading John Knox, if such is your inclination, I would also suggest A Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Volstonecraft. Thanks. How about you, Alia? Um, I would like to recommend literally anything Pratchett has ever written. Um, but in this case, specifically, uh, Jingo. It's another one of his novels, and uh, it examines in more depth the subjects of war, patriotism, and nationalism. Uh, it's really good. I really liked it. Um, and also, I'll put the we'll put the links in the uh, show notes. But there's a fantastic interview from the '90s with um, Sir Terry about the value of fantasy literature that Patrick Rothfuss wrote about uh, when when Sir Terry died. He he. It was actually an interview in the Onion back when the Onion was a, a paper you know, magazine in Wisconsin. And uh, so he found it and transcribed the interview. And it's a beautiful um, little interview with Sir Terry where he goes off on this long kind of defense of fantasy as actual literature. And he ends with, oh, that's a really good response. I'm glad I said all that. Like, which is just so Sir Terry. I just love it so much. And I maybe choked up reading the whole thing again because I still miss him terribly. Uh, but oh, so yeah. we'll, we'll put that link on there because it's a, it's great. And the fact that Patrick Rothfuss is the one that was kind of fanboying out about Sir Terry is also great because he's also a great writer. So Thanks so much. Um, I'm also going to recommend Terry Pratchett. Um, my recommendation is Carpe Jugula, which is um, one of the witch's novels in which um, vampires are invading um Lanker, but um, and one of the reasons I like it um, as a as a comparison to Monsters Regiment is it's a very different kind of invasion. Um, it's almost bureaucratic. Um, they're trying to sign an agreement. They want to um, get their blood on a schedule, and um, and it's, so it's a kind of um, it's an interesting idea. It's an interestingly different type of invasion because these are a new kind of vampire. That's what they say. We're a new kind of vampire. Um, and uh, I also like it as a, as a comparison to um, Monster Judgment because, as we've said several times earlier in this episode, um, he has a lot of stuff to say about religion in that book, too, because you kind of follow around. One of the characters you follow around is um, Mightily Oates, who is a young Omnian priest who's not even really sure he believes what he's telling everyone about I forgot um, that was the god a... Om. Yes. I, I, th I think his full name is Mightily is he who exalteth <laughs> Om Oates. I forgot um, the name. That's so great. <laughs> they all have hilarious Puritan sounding names. Um, and that book also has kind of women banding together to try to rout the invaders. Only in this case, they're witches. And... Um, and so they're kind of, and they're, and at least at the beginning of the book, they are without their kind of Sergeant Jackram, who is Granny Weatherwax, who's usually the one who's like, you know, getting them all into shape and telling them what to do. She's gone um, for reasons that are clear when you read the book. So um, Carpe Jugulum's great. If you don't want to go into that one completely blind and not knowing who anyone is, before you read Carpe Jugulum, read Weird Sisters and Lords and Ladies. Um, possibly also Witches Abroad, though that one is not quite as vital. Um, taking place as it does in a totally different location. Um, one other announcement before we close real fast listeners, um, just, at, we're recording this on, uh, March 1st and, uh, this morning we dropped, um, an episode that's the first episode in a new series that we're doing, a subsidiary series for CFP. It's called Complementarianish. Um, and it's, it's a new idea we're trying out. We wanted to bring our same kind of, um, erudite and collegial conversation about um, issues of gender and theology to the complementarian world. Um, so if you're interested at all in that, you can check that out. Um, you can find uh, a link to the show notes on our Facebook page, and you can find the episode in our usual feed with CFP. Um, and uh, that episode, first episode, is me, um, Alexis Neal, and Sarah Kluster, who both are also regulars on the CFP. Um, so we would love it if you would check that out. Um, 
thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight, listeners. And um, oh, um, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. And we love to hear from you. So if you have topic ideas or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to um, talk back to us about the things you've heard um, on the podcast, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page, and you can check out the show notes from this episode and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, Kristen Filippic is our press liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Jay Eldred and Ilea Danner-Grubbs, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll be discussing the character Ripley from the movie Alien and Aliens. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things, love.